WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Well, hello again, everybody. Every once in a while, you meet somebody who is multi-talented, and my buddy Stu Fink is not only a good friend, but multi-talented. He not only has a large collection of jingles and, and, and records and everything else, he also collects films, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Stu Who, how you doing? First of all, we need to start the show the way it should be started. And we all know who Ken Meyer is. That's true. Yes. That was... Seems like old times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? It does. It does. It does. All we need to have is that have it at midnight and we'll be all set. I don't know if I want to stay up that late anymore. <laughs> I, I you know, you. it's funny. I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and think to myself, my God, I used to work at at these hours, how could I do that? I know, both of us. I know. Yeah, exactly. Now, <laughs> I mean, I'm in bed by 9.30 at night. But anyhow, <laughs> we're going <laughs> to change the subject. I'm first waking about, up at that hour. Oh, well, that's well, whatever you, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> um, you are a film collector. I am an old radio collector. I am. And I can remember the first radio show I ever got. Now, what can you remember? Uh, and what got you interested in film? And what was maybe the first show you ever got? Well, see, that's a, that's a very complicated question. There's actually a movie coming out, not to change the topic, but there's a movie coming out called Film is Dead, Long Live Film. And... <laughs> It's by a local filmmaker, Peter Flynn, also a college professor. And it uh, explores the world of film collecting and private collecting who uh, in their own way have kind of saved things for the rest of the world to enjoy. And it asks and answers that question about the film experience. And for most uh, kids my age, most people my age, I'm just a big kid anyway, we started out playing with our father's eight millimeter projectors before video cams and home video and VHS and beta and DVD and streaming and all that stuff. If you wanted to have movies in the home, you had to have a movie projector. And the most common type was the eight millimeter projector. There were others, but that was the most common for economic reasons. And a lot of youngsters became enamored with their father's eight millimeter projector and uh, started playing with the projectors. And you could buy films, home movies, cartoons, comedies, monster movies that you could watch in the home. And that's how a lot of people like myself got bitten by the film bug, to answer your question. Uh, what was the first film? Um, I don't know. Only because my father would buy them for me. But what I will tell you, uh, uh -huh. that once he found I had interest in the film projector, that thing got put away. I never saw it again. He thought I should be out playing baseball and not playing with movie projectors. But uh -huh. years later, when I was an adult, probably around the time you and I were working together, uh, I bought my first film collection from a friend uh, who had them in high school. And this is 10 years later. He sells them to me and I became a full-time collector. But one of my first priorities, top level priority was collecting Abbott and Costello films, including the Abbott and Costello TV show, which would have great meaning for me because years later, as a film collector, I would meet up with other film people and get involved in restoring the Abbott and Costello TV show for the rest of the world. Uh, and of course, that, that would be 30, 40 years later, but that leads me to today and this program and my current project, which is just having completed commentary work on the second season set of the Abbott and Costello season, uh, a TV show. Is this an expensive Isn't that a heartwarming hobby? story of, of triumph in the big city? Is this an expensive hobby to be involved in? Yes. Oh, yes. It's not for the <laughs> weak of wallet. <laughs> um, just they, say things are, they say things are always greener in the other guy's wallet. And that's because he's not a film collector. <laughs> 
<laughs> Talking about restoring, I had, I don't know where it is now, a recording of Abbott and Costello telling the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. Oh, yeah. And I, I understand that it has been restored. Yes, and it's actually part of, there was a DVD restoration of the movie, <clears throat> which was Abbott and Costello's, it was one of their um, independent projects. They had a deal with their studio, which was Universal, that once or twice a year, they can go out and make their own movies uh, away from the studio. And Jack and the Beanstalk was uh, such an independent project. Uh, sometime, I want to say around 1952, 53. And Bob and his crackpot staff, and these guys really do an amazing job, got a hold of the original elements uh, and remastered the movie. But then as a bonus on the DVD track was the radio show, the storybook tale of Jack and the Beanstalk told by Abbott and Costello. So I, that that's out there. You can find it. My mother bought that for me when I was a lot younger. Uh, and if you're saying 52, 53, it may have been around that time. Yeah, that's when I, it was. I did find it on YouTube, um, the unrestored version, but I heard it and it brought back a lot of memories. I, tell me how you got involved with the, with the Abbott and Costello. Uh, uh, I guess phenomenon would be the right word. I assume you're asking how I got involved with these restoration projects. Yes. Uh, and it's not too difficult a concept to fathom because film collecting is a lot like radio. It's a very small community and most of the people tend to know one another. So as uh, having been a film collector for almost 40 years, uh, I fell in with a lot of people and the people I didn't fall in with, I just, pretty much got to know one such person and I've known him for years, Bob Fermanek. And he um, was, he had been working uh, not only with Abbott and Costello, he's worked with the Martin and Lewis estates. He worked for Jerry Lewis as an archivist. Uh, and he was also well-known in the film world. And that's how I got to know him. But I was also aware of his work cut to the pandemic and I find out that he's done some casting for commentators for the season one restoration. And I said, Oh, I'd like to do that. I'd actually like to do it for season two. So I called Bob. The whole conversation lasted about five minutes. <laughs> he recruited me for season two, but then he said, we have room on the season one collection. Why don't you do something there? So I picked up a season one episode called of all things, Kenny, this will make sense to you. Music lover, <laughs> uh, where I get to talk about music, but instead of talking about like rock and roll or country music, I'm talking about uh, Stephen Foster and Chopin and Cavalier, Rosticana, uh, and Chicha Donella, Nemen Ugada, Muziana Christian, that kind of thing, uh, oh, which, <laughs> which, is a, which is a Neapolitan folk song. Uh, and I did that for season one. That's my first commentary on the season one set. And then season two came along. And I wanted to jump on that very badly. They weren't sure at first, uh, but eventually I got the thumbs up uh, and I worked closely on the season two disc with this great writer from New York, Ron Palumbo. And we did a lot of detective work on things. He came up with a lost script that was never filmed, uh, but yet it was a script for the Abbott and Costello show. And I came up with uh, information and an actual sound clip on the original theme. And the sound clip was very interesting. And what you're hearing there is the second season theme to the Abbott and Costello show, but that's not off a film clip or a DVD or VHS tape. It's actually off the production library master that the theme came from. So it's a full fidelity recording that you're hearing. It's an amazing, amazing thing, amazing sound. Um, but it was sped up and cut for television purposes. Mm. So the original theme sounded something like this. 
which you hear is going at a slightly different pace. And it's really, for most of it, it's a whole different song until you get towards the end. Hmm. You can hear the similarities. Yep. But it's actually a much different theme. And if you want to hear the complete unedited version, it's on the Abbott and Costello Remastered Season 2 box set, which is available right now, uh, DVD and Blu-ray. And if you're an Abbott and Costello fan, it really, really is an amazing gift to have uh, if you followed the TV show and the career of Abbott and Costello. I mean, the, 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 the video, it just it looks brand new. And these things have run so many years. And one thing about the Abbott and Costello TV show, you look at the early days of television in the early 50s, how many television programs from the early 50s made it into the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or are still in use today? You can count them all on one hand, few fingers. Everybody knows Lucy. Um, few others, maybe Dragnet, maybe Ozzie and Harriet still run here, there, or somewhere on television or cable or something. But one of the ubiquitous programs on television during all those years was the Abbott and Costello show. And that's why there's interest in it. Hopefully there's interest in it and having it remastered and looking brand new, which, um, which it really does. It really does. Now I know on some television shows, uh, it gets better as time goes on. In other words, the second season's better than the first one and the third and fourth or whatever, how long it goes is on a par with season two. Is season two better than season one? Uh, depending on who you ask, but according to most people, uh, no. <laughs> well, a season really? one, uh, yeah, uh, but, but they're totally two different programs, even though they're both called the Abbott and Costello show. Season one was created uh, through the hindsight of Luke Costello, who realized the potential of television. But really, the scripts were created around their classic bits. So uh, you, uh, you have all these great routines in all these episodes. Meanwhile, when season two came along, it was more of your traditional sitcom. And it's not circuit. It's not rotate. It's not going. It's not based on, he said. Uh, it's not based on. The routines, but it's based on them. And it's more of a traditional sitcom. Now, what are the differences between season one uh, and season two? Well, this is radio. This is theater of the mind. So let's let the listener figure it out. You mean to say that you can prove that seven times 13 is 28? Well, it's got to be. Seven times 13 is 28. Go ahead. Now, first, we got to put down a 13, right? Right. There's a 13. Times seven. Times seven. Right. Seven weeks times 13, right? Seven times three? Twenty-one. Twenty-one. Seven times one? Seven. Seven. Seven and one? Eight. And two to carry. I want to ask you just one thing. Why? What makes a bloom go up? Out there. What's holding you down? <laughs> what is the first thing you buy in a baseball park? Hot dogs. A hot, a hot dog. Without mustard. Sure. Uh, without mustard. Mustard goes with a hot dog. Not with mine. Mustard was made for the hot dog. I don't care what the stuff is made for. I'm not going to eat it. I don't like it. Mustard and the hot dog go together. Let them go together. I'm not going to spoil any romance. Who's talking about romance? Mr. Costello, you know what I'm going to do? The first thing I'm going to do is slap on a writ of habeas corpus. Then there's a writ of certiorari, and then I'll slap on a writ of mandamus. That's good. Well, it's not good for you, but I just ah. love to put on the writs. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get out of here. What's the matter with you? This guy's a half rip. What do you want on Flugel Street? I want to find out where the Susquehanna Hat Company is. Susquehanna Hat Company? Yeah, I got to deliver these hats. You know what I think of Susquehanna Hats? This is what I think of. Oh. You know who makes these hats? Little girls with little curls. They work from 7 o'clock in the morning until 7 o'clock at night. You know what I think of that hat? You stand there and have the unmedicated call to hey, ask me. I got to use a telephone, I. Uh, loan me 50 cents. Louis. Abbott, I would like to loan you 50 cents, but I can't do it. All I got is 40 cents. 40 cents? Yeah. Well, all right. Give me the 40 cents, and you owe me 10 cents. Right. All right? You know the guy's oh. name's on the baseball team? Yeah. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yeah. I mean, the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? <laughs> the guy on first base. <laughs> who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't know. Wait a minute. I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. <laughs> 
And those are golden moments from the first season of the Abbott and Costello show. And anybody who's familiar with the team will recognize a lot of those bits as being their classic routines that they carried over from vaudeville and from movies. And they're, they've also gotten elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame largely because of the who's on first routine that we just heard. Yes. And actually, uh, you, you mentioned YouTube earlier. You can go on YouTube and find uh, they did that. They, re, they revived who's on first on television in 1956, I believe, when they were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. They did it on the Steve Allen show with a few variations. And it's on YouTube. I'll take a look at it because I like them and I like Steve Allen. Steve Allen was terrific. You and I met Steve Allen, he said, changing the topic. Yes, we that? did. Yes, I remember it very well. It was, I think it was for Children's Hospital, was it not? I'm not exactly. No, 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 no. This was an after hours uh, uh, deal. He was doing, he was at um, one of the comedy uh, uh, places in Boston and he was doing a show. And it was only like a 15 minute show. Uh, but you came up with tickets and I got a call one night. Uh, that you had tickets to Steve Allen, and we went. And, of course, you knew the publicist involved, so we got backstage to speak to him. Uh, I spoke to him about Lou Costello and Lenny Bruce, and uh, who Steve Allen knew both of them. And I forget what you asked him about. But, uh, we, yeah, but sure enough, there he was, Steve Allen with Stu Fink and Ken Meyer. And that was, yeah. I think, around 1986. As a friend of mine would say, live and in living color. He was, too. He was, and he was an amazing man. I mean, he yes. could just, he could just yes. talk and talk and talk about anything. And it always made sense as opposed to when I speak and people on the radio say, what the heck is he talking about? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Uh, everyone talks about Johnny Carson inventing and doing the monologue. Um, and from what I can find out, Steve Allen actually did it before him. He did it. He was a, a, an inventor himself. Yes. I think it was Steve Allen, he 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 wrote a song called uh, "This Could Be the Start of Something Big." Yes, and Dave Maynard used to use that as a theme song. Yes, he did. Yep, I yep. can remember. Mm -hmm. I remember well, and I think a couple of people named Stephen Eady uh, got a hit with it as well. That's right, Stephen Eady. Love him. Love him. All right. Um, there were other characters involved in Evan Costello. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. OK. And and you know what? We have a few what? of them here because I, I told him, I, look, I'm going to be on the air with Ken Meyer. He's an <laughs> old friend. And I want you to meet uh, these these great people. OK. And, and most of the crazy characters came in the first season of the Abbott and Costello show. But they were all very, very well-known people. For instance, we had Joe Besser played a little Lord Fortleroy con, uh, uh, character named Stinky. <gasps> I'll harm you. Now take it easy, Joe. Kenny's a nice guy. There's no need to worry. And then we had the great Mr. Bocica Loop, who not only made great comedy, but he could sing. One banana, two bananas, three bananas, you got it, bananas and Angie. And for the eye candy department, they had the beautiful Hillary Brooke, who moviegoers will definitely remember. And TV uh, lovers will also remember her on lots of different shows, including Lou Costello's part time girlfriend on the Abbott and Costello show. Say hi to Kenny. Hillary, would you do that? Hello. How are you? Isn't that nice, Kenny? All the wonderful people, you know. And one of the other recurring regulars from the first season of the Abbott and Costello show was a young girl named Joan Shawley. Hey, you're cute. I think she likes you, Ken. Hey. I do. Uh, and um, the original first season characters didn't carry over till the second season. But one such character did. Uh, and his name was Sidney Fields. Now, Costello, what is your income? Nothing. What is your potential income? How much are you capable of earning? Nothing. Nothing? Oh, $50 a week, $75 a week? Are you kidding? When I work, you get $100 a week. Ah, $100 a week potential income. I should say $95 a week would be a fair alimony. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Fields. I can't live on $5 a week. How much did you say you were getting? Nothing. Well, then you have an increased income of $5 a week. <laughs> I think that settles it. Nobody could render taradiddle and subterfuge. Those are big words. Nobody could twist the language around like Sidney Fields. And he did it with Costello time and time again to the point where Costello used him in movies 
He used him on the radio show. He used him on the television show, both in the two seasons of the TV show and on the Colgate Comedy Hour, which Abbott and Costello were frequent hosts of. And then after Sid Field stopped working with Abbott and Costello, he was well known on Jackie Gleason's variety show, where he pretty much played the same type of character with all the double talk and taradiddle and subterfuge. I had to go to college to learn those words. <laughs> I don't know what they mean, but I can say them. That's all that matters. Now, both you and I have somewhat of a connection with Abbott and Costello. I had them on the air, and it was so much fun to say, hey, we've got Abbott and Costello on this program. And you were able to do the same thing, sort of. Uh, uh, sort of, yeah. Um, well, by the late 80s, uh, your career had changed, and mine had as well. And we found ourselves working at other places, not necessarily together, uh, but yeah. we were still in touch. And I had a talk show on one side of the state uh, and you had a talk show on the other side of the state. Now, I, I will point out that your talk show was much bigger than mine was at the time. But we would talk and compare notes. And you started telling me about having interviewed Chris Costello's uh, Chris Costello, Lou Costello's daughter, Chris, dear girl. And Bud Abbott's son, Bud Jr., who sadly we lost in 1997. Uh, but you just you gave me the phone numbers. Uh, you didn't only give me uh, Abbott and Costello's phone numbers. You gave me Mel Blank's phone number. You gave me Don Dunphy's phone number. We had a great time trading off phone numbers and getting to know people and trading off guests for our talk shows. But that's that, funny. That was. I, yeah, I did that. I did Chris Costello and Bud Abbott Jr. Just like I, you did. And actually, I, they're included in the commentary. You'll hear them. My commentary on wow. the on the disc set. That's great. That's funny because I was thinking about Don Dunphy the other day and uh, what a wonderful man he was. Oh, he was too. Yeah. Well, he realizes that he'd lived on Long Island and I lived on Long Island. If I'd known that when I lived on Long Island, I might have knocked on his door and say, hey, Don, you got any fight films we can watch? <laughs> I love yeah. the fight films. You know, you talk about a film collector. I have a big collection of fight films, too, in addition to my Abbott and Costello shows. Yeah, I I tend to lean toward radio boxing myself. That's but, good too. Yeah, it, it it is. In fact, there's an album that Don Dumphy does, which I have thanks to you. I was going to say uh, you have it because I gave it to you. That's right. I I believe in giving credit where credit is due, <laughs> and uh, it's a it's a great album and it's got a lot of great clips. Um, and he also wrote a book which has uh, the transcriptions or her transcriptions that are written in there of some of the greater boxing matches that he did. It's called ringside. I think I have seen television broadcasts of boxing matches and the broadcasts themselves, as well as the fights themselves were super dull. <laughs> and the announcer he sounded something like this and he took his time and there's no excitement. And then you hear the radio counterpart of the same fight, different broadcast, obviously radio and television. And you hear Don Dunphy and he's like, Joe Lewis, center of the ring. He comes out. He's moving. Marciano yep. ducks, you know, that kind of thing. And yep. he just sets this level of excitement. Well, if you're listening to uh, uh Don Dunphy's broadcast, you're like, this is an incredible fight. If you're watching the video portion, there's nothing <laughs> happening. But yeah. Don Dunphy had a way of just setting a pace where you thought there was so much action and so much excitement, where really the only action and excitement was in his voice. And there really wasn't a lot happening in the ring, action-wise. Uh, and, and that was the, the brilliance, I think. And I didn't realize this till years and years later, after having compared radio broadcasts and fight films and television broadcasts, when ESPN, before ESPN, bought Classic Sports Network, they had a fight film collection where they were showing original pay-per-view broadcasts and kinescopes and things like that, stuff that had never been seen uh, and a chance to see a lot of 
bro- uh, uh, telecasts that had never been seen before. A lot of fights, mostly from the early 50s, some late 40s. Uh, and some of these fights were just very, very good. And others were just lackluster and mediocre. But then you hear Don Dunphy's broadcasts and it's like, wow, amazing and how he how he did that. And it was really astounding, astounding Don Dunphy. And you gave me his phone number. Yep. Uh, and, and you know, it was funny. I thought it would be hard to find it. But I called Ring Magazine one day and casually said to the person who answered, look, I'm at WBZ Radio and I'd like to try and contact Don Dumphy. Is there any way you can help me? And he just very calmly, yeah, here's his number. And I just sat there and said, wow. And uh, it all depends a- on who you know. Yeah, exactly. And did, got you know, did you know Nat Fleischer? Only the name. Uh, never talked to him, never met him. But I but I know the name. He, uh, was, he was the head honcho at Ring Magazine forever until he passed yeah. around 1971 or 72. Something like that. Yeah, I, I didn't call them then. I think it was later on. Yeah. But I, I knew his name. And there is a great recording. There was a radio show that was done. Uh, and played to the troops overseas called Command Performance. And they used, people used to write in and and tell them what they wanted to hear. You know, like, uh, I want to hear Bing Crosby sing Silver Bells or something like that. Right. And somebody wrote in and mentioned they wanted to hear part of this fight broadcast with Don Dumphy. And I've heard the broadcast, and it's great. It is absolutely tremendous. Now, you also told me once, getting back to Abbott and Costello, that Costello did an interview after a, after a boxing match. And, and, and I can't picture Costello doing it, but he did, according to you. He did. Uh, you have to understand the history of fight films. In 1912, uh, actually 1910, Jack Johnson fought Jim Jeffries, I think, in Reno. Um, and it was billed, of course, as fight of the century. Uh, yeah. and, it, and it gave rise to the term, the great white hope. And Jim Jeffries, who was this invincible champion when he held the title before he retired, uh, um, was this amazing fighter, unbeatable. But this is five years later, six years later, something like that. Uh, and Jack Johnson now is the champion and everybody wants to see Johnson defeated. And so, Jim Jeffries is lured out of retirement by the great Tex Rickard, who also built the Boston Garden, by the way, but that's a different story. Jeffries comes out of retirement, fights Jack Johnson, gets his head handed to him. Johnson destroys him uh, over like 10 or 11 rounds. And the fight is shown around the country. Now, this is 1910, 1911. So, Motion picture convenience is still in its infancy, but yet the fight manages to travel uh, the highways and end up in theaters and it gets shown Uh, and it didn't go over too well. Uh, um, A black fighter beating up a white fighter championship bout notwithstanding and history has shown there were race riots over it. The earliest race riots in the 1900s were over a fight film over Jack Johnson beating Jim Jeffries. And it got to be such a chronic problem in the United States. There was an act of Congress to ban interstate commerce of fight films. And so you had films that were fights that were filmed that were never exhibited in the United States from 1912 all the way up to the late 30s. Well, come the late 30s, 1938, Joe Lewis defeats Max Schmeling in one round at Yankee Stadium. And it becomes more than a boxing match. It became an event of international intrigue because you had the Nazis coming to power around the world, luckily not in this country. And you had this great American hero, Joe Lewis, defeat the Nazi power in one round. Uh, And everybody wanted to see that fight. And then suddenly the laws, the regulations, they kind of subsided. They went away and fight films became part of the mainstream by 1940. In 1940, in early July, 
Max Baer fought Tony Galento somewhere in Jersey, Jersey City, I think. Somewhere, Roosevelt, New Jersey, something like that. And for the newsreel camera, Lou Costello did the post-fight interview with Max Baer, uh, who had just defeated two-ton Tony Galento. Almighty the bum. That yeah. used to be his line. That's what he would say. And you can find it. Uh, it was included on one of the Abbott and Costello restoration projects on one of the movies. I think it may have been the Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, but if you want to find it online, uh, and I know it's available on both 8mm and 16mm film, it's Tony Galento versus Max Baer, July 1940, and Lou Costello did the post-fight interview. Aren't you glad oh. you asked? I am because he, that, he, he and Joe Lewis sat in on the interview and he looks at Joe Lewis and he says, you're a bad boy. <laughs> and Lewis cracks this big grin. And Lewis, Lewis, Joe Lewis was not the guy to show a lot of emotion. Happy, <laughs> sad. And he pretty much always looked deadpan, dead on. You know, that you never really saw emotion. But when Costello said that to him, he cracked this huge grin. You could tell he was <laughs> loving it. Yeah. You know, I back. Then even when we were in school, you knew who the heavyweight champion was, who his challengers were. I can't name you one boxer in this day and age. Isn't no, that sad? I, I know. I know. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, everybody Floyd, knew Joe Lewis. Everybody knew uh, Rocky Marciano. Everybody knew Floyd Patterson. Right. Everybody knew uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. Everybody knew Joe Frazier, yep. George Foreman. Yep. I mean, you know, yep. how far you want to go with this? Larry Holmes. Uh, and right. now you'd be hard pressed. Yeah, and it's 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 very sad. Um, the Friday night fights with the Gillette Cavalcade of Sports mm -hmm. were a big event um, because we could we would my dad and I would watch it with the sound turned down and listen to Don Dunphy and Win Elliott. And then when it was over, we would watch Mel Allen do jackpot bowling. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you're, you're really uh, look at television today and everybody talks about cable and, and Netflix and everything else. But for my money, I'll take that kind of stuff anytime. I'm with you. Anytime. Yeah. Now, there was also a, a tragedy in Lou Costello's life, but it also showed how stoic and what a man he was. Yes, this is true. Uh, and it happened, I want to say, in 19, oh, 1941, it started. Uh, and Lou Costello had taken uh, ill. He had rheumatic fever. Actually, he had had it for years and um, had to sit out for a year. And Abbott sat out with him, refused work until Lou was was back uh, and ready to perform. And uh, he came back to work, I want to say, in early 1943. It was November, I believe, 1943. He comes back to work. Uh, he go goes back to work that day and while he's at the studio rehearsing his first radio show his son just days shy of his first birthday has a horrible accident at home and is found dead in the swimming pool it's a horrible thing uh, and Costello having been notified stayed at the studio and did the program hey! Costello where have you been look at you you're perspiring something awful. I ain't perspiring, Abbott. I just took a shower with my shirt, socks, and underwear on. You took a shower with your shirt, socks, and underwear on? What's the idea? Do you know a quicker way to get your laundry done? Oh. <laughs> and that was one of the bits that he did on the show that night. Come on, Abbott, let's go. I've been waiting eight months to meet Lana Turner. Uh, just a moment, Mr. Costello. Now what? I'm from the insurance firm of Birchbark and Canoe. I'm Birchbark. Where's Canoe? He went up the river. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, every show must have a bad joke. This one is on us. No. Thank you. And you could hear that Costello was right on in terms of his comedic prowess. I mean, he was right there. Uh, can only imagine what was thinking. He was thinking what was going through his mind. He finished the program. Uh, and after that, Bud made this announcement. 
And now here's Bud Abbott with a final word. Ladies and gentlemen, now that our program is over and we have done our best to entertain you, I would like to take a moment to pay tribute to my best friend and to a man who has more courage than I have ever seen displayed in the theater. Tonight, the old expression, the show must go on, was brought home to all of us on this program, more clearly than ever before. Just a short time before our broadcast started, Luke Costello was told that his baby, one-year-old Tamara, had died. In the face of the greatest tragedy which can come to any man, Luke Costello went on tonight so that you, the radio audience, would not be disappointed. There's nothing more that I can say except that I know you all join me in expressing our deepest sympathy to a great trooper. Good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Okay, wow. Los Angeles. That's, that's amazing. So is the quality, by the way. Um, but that whole scenario is just... I remember when you first told me about it, I didn't know anything about it. And hearing that, which I have not heard before, um, you don't know what to say about it. You don't know what to say. I mean, you just hear hear him. um, And I have to tell you, I actually recently sat down and listened to the whole broadcast from that day, which I believe was November 4th, 1943. Yeah. And filled with all sorts of references to Costello's health. But then, as you heard, there's a bit there involving an insurance, uh, an insurance man, man, and he starts talking about having accidents and things that can happen to you at home. Uh, and this is the day his son died. His son died yeah. in a swimming pool. Talk about the worst kind of accident you could have. And here, he's, here he is on the radio that night with all these stupid jokes about insurance. As well, oh, well, you know, if you lose a leg, you say, well, what happens if I lose a, a fingernail or something like that? And, you know, they're trying to make humor out of it. And he had to endure all that, which he did. You can hear it on the broadcast. And he did it. If you didn't know what had just gone on, you would think it was just another comedy routine. But that had to have been hell for him to get through oh. that but but he did but he did uh it's a tribute to um the professional standards of Lou Costello but that couldn't have been easy and people who knew him said after that uh yeah he continued to work and he continued to be very successful and raise a family and have another daughter who was uh, young Chris but he was never the same after that after losing uh young Butch which was Lou Costello Jr. it was never the same after that yeah, and I can I can understand why. Um, it just it just shows what great performers they both were. Um, I had heard once that they didn't get along, but obviously that's not true from what we just heard with uh, Bud Abbott uh, after the program was over. So I think when you're that close to somebody. Um... Uh, and you're together all the time and you see more of them than you see of anybody else, including your own like wife and children. I think, you know, people tend to get on one's nerves after a while. Uh, I know I've had friends like that who I probably spent too much time with. And I can remember time when we'd be at each other's throats. Uh, and, you know, you read of popular comedy teams and musical teams as well throughout the years uh, and how they just tired of one another or just became too belligerent or disdainful of one another. I think Simon and Garfunkel is probably uh, one of the best examples of that, of two guys who loved each other, but just spent too much time together. And after a while, they just, uh, they, they came to dislike each other until they'd separate for a while and realize how much they meant to one another. And they get back together again for a while and then they'd separate again and so on and so forth. Luckily you and I didn't work together for that long. I mean, a few years, <laughs> but we didn't spend that much time together. So you and I were never at each other's throats. True. Except maybe fighting over where we go for lunch, <laughs> which we used to talk about on the air. There's a, a broadcast clip somewhere of you and I on the air talking about um, the roast beef sandwiches we had for lunch. <laughs> Uh, you know, you talk about all this stuff. I can remember, too, hearing about problems on the Today Show um, with Jane Pauley and Willard Scott and um, Tom Brokaw and all that. And it's sad to hear things like that because you can, you don't picture it when you see them on the air because these are all professionals. This is true. 
And when you hear about things like that, it, it it's kind of disconcerting. Well, a lot of it is just human nature and you just kind of have to rise above it, I guess. I guess. But look, let's face it. Um, you had to be at work at like, you know, 4, 4.30 a.m. every day uh, or earlier. Uh, you might be a little... Uh, uh, um, Aggravated at the situation, edgy over the situation. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Other comedy teams were around at that time. Was was and were or were any of them like like Laurel and Hardy and uh, Little Rascals and that kind of stuff? Uh, were they? Did they have the magnetism that Bud Abbott and Lou Costello had? Well, I think if there were no Laurel and Hardy, there wouldn't have been an Abbott and Costello. Um, comedy teams came a dime a dozen, especially during vaudeville and burlesque. Very few could cross over into movies or radio, but Laurel and Hardy did beautifully, beautifully. And they weren't the only comedy team out there, but they're certainly one of the more popular ones of their day during the 1930s. During the late 30s, Abbott and Costello's star started to rise, and they kind of picked up Laurel and Hardy's success and carried it well into the 1950s. Uh, Martin and Lewis rivaled Abbott and Costello's success during the early 1950s, but then Dean and Jerry fell apart the same way Bud and Lou did. Yeah. Would you have other comedy teams into... The 60s, sure you would. You had Marty Allen and Steve Rossi. Uh, you had Joey Fay and Mickey Deems, who were also known as Mac and Meyer for Hire, which was which was a television program in the 1960s that um, the, the episodes were uh, 15 minutes long and the success of the series lasted less than that. Although they're still fun to watch. And if you're a film collector, then you probably still have access to them. But... There were other comedy teams that were very popular. And you talk about the Little Rascals, who've recently just been remastered by Classic Flicks, the same company that did the Abbott and Costello series uh, that we're talking about here today. So the films are still out there. Uh, as far as comedy teams, really, uh, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, and maybe to a lesser extent, Martin and Lewis, were probably the more consummate uh, comedy teams of their day. Uh, the only team I can think of that came close in recent years was I thought Aykroyd and Belushi were very, oh. very close to becoming another uh, classic comedy team. Now, they were both two great performers and great comedy people. But as a comedy team, uh, they, uh, you know, the Blues Brothers, had they continued that trend in other movies, uh, then I think they would have been just as popular as Abbott and Costello. As a team, you know, individually, they were both huge. They were both very well known. Uh, but I don't think they ever really quite got there. I think Abbott and Costello is the consummate comedy team, but you can't take anything away from Laurel and Hardy or the Rascals or Charlie Chaplin or Charlie Chase or Harry Langdon, who sadly, I mean, we, we sit here, we talk about these people. You and I rem both remember them well. Have this yep. conversation with a younger person. Uh, you know, they all know the Three Stooges, but who really remembers Abbott and Costello or Laurel and Hardy anymore? Not too many people, sad to say. So it's good that uh, these sets come out. Uh, and even if they don't do well on the short term, long term, they will stand uh, as an example of what was and how great the comedy was. And hopefully will um, bring uh, that type of comedy and that type of entertainment back to a world which hopefully we'll be waiting for it. And speaking of waiting for it, I know uh, you're dying to hear some of the things from the second season of the oh, Costello show for no other reason, because I'm on the disc, but um, they have, we have some great highlights and um, we heard the first season. We might as well hear the second season. Excuse me. Uh, this is Mr. Bud Abbott and this is Mr. Costello. I'm sorry to say. How do you do, sir? Do you realize what it is to have peddlers pester you all day long? Say, listen, I've got one of the greatest little gadgets here you ever saw. Keep pedals out of your hair the rest of your life. They're 50 cents a piece or two for a dollar. I'll take the two for a dollar. You got a bargain. You know what I would do if I had 10 bucks? What? I would buy a big porterhouse steak smothered with lamb chops, and I'd buy some new furniture for this joint and a big car. Where are you getting all this for 10 bucks? I got a friend of mine. He's in the business wholesale. <laughs> hey, Abbott and Costello. 
I want to talk to you. We'll tell them when I get in. What do you want me to do? Go ahead and back up. I'll tell you when. You just told me I got to back up. Well, back up. I'm going to back up. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll get a promotion for this. Sure, they're liable to make you a policeman. I want you to go away from me. I don't like you. And I don't like you. And I always will. <laughs> you might as well beat the landlord to the bunch and tell him we haven't got the rent for him. I'm sorry, Abbott. Yeah, I know. I'm always doing everything wrong. Well, I'm going to go away. Go away where? Over here and sit down. I'm tired. <laughs> and, and one of the things they did in the second season, because uh, they didn't bring back a lot of the classic routines uh, as they had done in the first season, but they did variations on them. 
you know what? I am going to work on it because I, I remember have... a time you picked up the phone and called Bob Hope. If you can call Bob Hope, you can call Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> that was a great comic. We should be able to find someone who can give us that information. As a matter of fact, I have had a gentleman on the on the air who got me in touch with Larry Matthews, who played Richie. And if he could do that, he may be able to get me in touch with Dick Van Dyke. I've been toying with that in the back of my little don't toy just do it just do it <laughs> what I rem that? look i remember a day you wouldn't have taken a moment to think about it you would have just picked up the phone and made the call so you know i just pick up the phone and make the call and if I you actually, want give me the money i'll uh, give me the money give me the number i'll <laughs> actually i had van dyke on the air once uh when we were doing a show on famous fathers on television and Van Dyke was one of the people. And I, I happened to get lucky because at that time he was he was doing, I can't remember what the show was. He was in New York doing a Broadway show. And it was easy enough to reach him. And he was marvelous. He was absolutely marvelous. Um, and he's a, he's a great performer. And, oh, yeah. And he's a fabulous performer. Yes. And he's what, 98? I know, Something right? like that? Yeah. yeah. God bless him. God bless him is right. And those shows which still run on one channel or another are still funny. Yep. I've watched them on YouTube. You know, we talk about the Abbott and Costello show being so ubiquitous. It went on in the 50s and was on in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. Uh, and yep. the Dick Van Dyke show was another show just like that. Just yep. like that. That, that. Still we, is. Yeah, still is. They, still they, is. Just, had a, they just had a special uh on van dyke yes i heard that yes but listen thank you again for doing this You're are we out of talent. time are we out of time just about oh my gosh yeah. where did it go um i don't know probably bud abbott would know the but bud and lou would know the answer to that yeah but okay. but you're a, a great fountain of information you're a great friend you have a marvelous collection of anything in the world and I can't tell you how much I always enjoy having you on the air. Well, I always enjoy being on the air with you. So uh, let's uh, let's make sure the hits just keep on coming. You got it, my friend. All right. And that'll do it for another edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's K-J-M-E-Y-E-R-7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.